Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to celebrate St. Patrick's Day a day early with folklorist Lisa Gabbert. She says over time, St. Patrick's Day has become a very American holiday. Today it's a largely a festive rite of spring, green being the appropriate spring color, characterized by the performance of Irishness through the use of often stereotyped symbols. Many people, not merely those with ancestral connections to Ireland, enjoy being Irish for the day as it's a way to celebrate Irish music and culture along with better weather. We're going to ask why this unofficial holiday is so popular in the U.S. We want to know your St. Patrick's Day traditions. Do you wear green? Do you pinch somebody who's not wearing green? Do you eat corned beef and cabbage? What else do you do? Um, Do you enjoy being Irish for the day? We'd love to hear from you at 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Lisa Gabbard is Associate Professor of English, Director of the Folklore Program at USU, and her research interests include folklore and landscape, festivity, and ritual and play in medical contexts. She teaches courses on region and landscape, folk art, children's folklore, theory, occupational folklore, and field work. And her writing appeared in a variety of journals. Uh, her uh, book, Winter Carnival in a Western Town, Identity Change and the Good of the Community, was published by Utah State University Press in uh, 2011. Lisa Gabbard, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. We appreciate you uh, uh, joining us. So let me just start with that uh, the question, uh, St. Patrick's Day, St. Patrick, right? I assume this started as a religious holiday, uh, so maybe start there and, and then uh, tell us why this has just exploded in the U.S. Okay. Well, um, I think we forget uh, sometimes that St. Patrick is, uh, or the term St. Patrick's Day refers to the actual St. Patrick, and he is um, a Catholic saint and is credited with Christianizing Ireland and um, a missionary, being a missionary uh, in about the, the fourth or the fifth century. And uh, so St. Patrick's Day is, is in, originally his feast day is, is where it came from. So um, in the Catholic liturgical calendar, you have you know, innumerable feast days, and St. Patrick is one of the more important ones. And so it's it's a religious holiday at its base, um, and you would you know I think go to mass and eat you know because it's a feast and uh, maybe drink a little bit and it's sort of a day off uh, from work um, and kind of a, a family holiday. Um, but in the United States, you know, of course, we um, are part of the Irish diaspora, uh, which means that we have just you know millions of of Irish immigrants, particularly in the 19th century. And interestingly, um, you know, the majority of Irish immigrants came to the U.S. in the mid-19th century after the famine. But even before that, there were, uh, in New York and Boston, which have always been heavily Irish, um, celebrations of St. Patrick's Day in some way, as early as, um, I think, the late 1600s or early 1700s. There's records of um, um, military uh marches in honor of St. Patrick's Day because people were part of the uh, well, the British Army. Mm. Now, uh, the Irish, along with just about any other wave of immigrants, uh, when they first came, they were looked down on, right? Ostracized. And so apparently, reading some things that you'd written, uh, St. Patrick's Day, I guess, became a a way for uh, the Irish to celebrate their heritage and to sort of push, push back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's uh, less of a religious holiday in the United States than it is a celebration of a location, number one, you know, of Ireland, and then of one's ethnicity, you know, of, of being Irish and sort of, you know, being proud to be Irish, because it wouldn't, of course, make any sense to celebrate Ireland and being Irish, Irish in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the United States, it's it's an ethnic holiday. Um, it's a it's a celebration of connection to to Ireland. And you know what's one of the interesting things about why I think it's so popular is because because of the large number of I- Irish immigrants, um, many Americans do have Irish roots and Irish connections. You know, my husband's family, for example, is all heavily Irish Catholic. They're all from New York, and. Uh, to them still, you know, St. Patrick's Day is a, a big deal. My mother-in-law is always astounded if we don't eat corned beef, beef and cabbage on St. Patrick's Day or, you know, go out for St. Patrick's Day or do something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's uh, it's very important. Corned beef and cabbage is, you know, that's the, that's the stereotypical meal. Yes, yes, absolutely. Food is 
always an important part of any kind of celebration. And uh, some holidays are more associated with particular kinds of foods, such as Thanksgiving, for example. And uh, corned beef and cabbage has actually been a traditional Irish-American thing to eat for you know a long, long time, since the beginning, I think, of the 20th century at least. But it's not something that is eaten in Ireland. Uh, it's not an Irish dish. It's an Irish-American dish. And hmm. um, my understanding is that uh, well, it was cheap, uh, and so that's why people bought it and mm. uh, made it. But in Ireland, they eat, uh, I think the, the traditional dish is bacon and cabbage uh, because beef was just too expensive. Yeah. So economic, ter- <laughs> corned beef was, was cheap, I guess that's why. Yeah. Yeah. That was that, Well, that's what the yeah. you know, some of the articles have said. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but now it's just so, so much part of, uh, of St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this, you, you this kind of have to do it. Yeah, yeah, and this is how you know traditions evolve, right? Mm-hmm. There's uh, a reason somebody introduces something, or people start doing things, and then it becomes uh, uh, people have emotional attachments to it, and it starts taking on kind of a more um, symbolic meaning. And so, for many people today, it doesn't matter that it, they don't really eat corned beef and cabbage in Ireland. Um, it still symbolizes uh, a way of being Irish for people in the United States. Mm-hmm. Now you you also say that uh, it's a day for performance of Irishness through the use of symbols and and often stereotypes. So yes, maybe the last bastion of stereotyping that, that's allowed. Yeah, I kind of think so. You know, um, and it's funny because if you think about you know if you go to the store and buy a costume or or uh, you know Walgreens for St. Patrick's Day, there's always shamrocks. Um, there's the big kiss me, I'm Irish buttons with the big lips. Um, you can buy leprechaun hats that are, you know, gigantic sort of cat in the hat looking things and sequins and beads. And then, of course, um, there's the excessive, you know, or, or perception of excessive drinking and things like that. And um, it, it's almost like the only sanctioned time that we can stereotype a particular group without thinking of it as stereotyping or, or having specific re- repercussions. Um, a little bit of that goes on, I think, uh, with Cinco de Mayo um, and stereotyping uh, Latinos and, and Mexican and Mexican-American culture, because sometimes you'll get people with huge sombreros and things like that. But that I think people are a little more sensitive to that, um, whereas there doesn't seem to be any problem with it in, in St. Patrick's Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and you, you probably found a little bit of this uh, around. I, I once I have Welsh heritage, mm. and I noticed one time that there's a Welsh American society. I can't remember how I stumbled upon this, and they were kind of mildly pushing back against the the term Welching, Welching on a debt. <laughs> That's the only thing I could find about Welsh. Yeah, you know, you know, a, a negative stereotype about about Welsh. But uh, this is sort of we're given permission, or we give ourselves permission to. Do yeah. some stereotyping about Irish. Yeah, and um, I think, it, you know, maybe one of the reasons, and I don't know, you know, the Irish are very well assimilated into American culture. Um, so maybe it has to do with the fact that it's an older immigrant group or, you know, it's very well assimilated. Or they're white, you mm-hmm. know, could be, you know, there could be some racial dimensions to it. Um, sort of a, a celebration of a white European, Northern European ethnicity um, a little bit. I'm, I'm not exactly sure why. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, St. Patrick's Day celebrations have traditionally been, because this is not official holiday, have been put on by private groups. So, you know, parades and such. And this leads to um, some some tensions being played out sort of more in the public sphere, but more with private dimensions. And I'm talking about the, the parades and, and the exclusion of uh, the LGBTQ community from some of these parades. Yes, that's right. Um, parades are, well, parades are an important part of many different kinds of holidays and, and celebrations. And certainly the St. Patrick's Day parades in New York, for example, and um, Boston, and, and even, you know, in Salt Lake, can be very political. The most recent controversy is over, you know, being gay and being Catholic and whether or not you're allowed to march. And Interestingly, those parades are organized by private organizations. So even though they're in public spaces um, and they are granted permits by the cities and stuff, they, they're deemed private and therefore are um, 
can take the license to be exclusionary, and that's been a huge political controversy um, that apparently is still unresolved. I was under the impression that it had been resolved because two years ago, I believe in 2014, maybe three years ago now, uh, the LGBTQ community uh, had been granted permission to march, and um, I read recently that just this year um, in Boston they had... uh, been allowed to march, but not wear any, wear any signs like a rainbow or anything like that that um, signaled their their um, their identity. And these were veterans, so this caused, of course, a, a huge uh, controversy again. And I believe, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, that the mayor is boycotting the parade as well mm-hmm. as Guinness and some other commercial um, mm-hmm. sponsors of it. So it does have you know significant repercussions. Yeah. And then in the past, uh, you know, in in New York, the parades have been political because there has been uh, expressions of Irish nationalism, um, support for you know the IRA, which of course is, has been in a controversial organization and things like that. So uh, there's a dimension of, of politics to any parade, um, mm. St. Patrick's Day included. And I guess inevitably so, because it's an expression of identity, right? But then who gets to say who belongs within that identity. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, the um, the St. Patrick's Day is very closely associated with an expression of Catholicism, um, particularly um, here, and the Catholic Church traditionally has um, been exclusionary towards the LGBTQ community, so mm-hmm. um, that's where that comes from. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a purposeful embrace, right? Uh, the, you know, Hibernian society would would be trying to you know put the best foot forward and celebrate Irishness. I, I'm I'm thinking of parallels to the days of '47 parade. There have have been a couple of controversies in the in the past in in the Salt Lake City parade. This is an expression of the, uh, the official Mormon community of of their heritage. That's exactly right. Put on by a private organization, but with public um, you know assistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, with the days of '47, um, you know, the, the if you even if you look at the form of a parade, for example, the organization of it, who is marching first? You know, um, I remember the first time I saw the days of '47 parade, um, and, it, and it goes almost right by my house down in Salt Lake, so I watch it almost every year. Um, but the first time I saw it, I was really struck because it was the uh, um, the president of the Mormon Church and then the governor mm. of the state, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, who marches first and in what order and mm. um, who follows what can be can be very political. Mm. That's interesting. Uh, I grew up in Utah, so I guess I never questioned that. But as an outsider, perhaps you... I was struck you, by it. You, you wondered why the president of the church is going before the governor. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, it just, it, it, it was very clear mm-hmm. to me, you know, what the purpose of the parade was, that it was, was a religious parade mm-hmm. associated with a specific right. religious organization, not a civic parade or a state parade, although the two you know, can be obviously closely intertwined. Right. Could also be seen as a representation, uh, you know, writ large of a complaint that some people have about Utah of a too close relationship of church and state. But. Yeah, I mean, parades are, by nature, they're sort of, um, I mean, they're fun, but they also are kind of a, uh, maybe a aggressive form is a little too strong, but they're a very... Um, um, they take up a lot of space, you know, they take up a lot of resources and a lot of organization and they, you need to clear the city space to make room for them. So it causes traffic issues and, you know, res- takes a lot of resources. And, you know, of course, in Ireland, um, parades have always been kind of problematic because, uh, you know, the, the orange parades would march through Catholic neighborhoods and um, Catholics would, uh, you know, take offense at that and parades make a lot of noise. Uh, so the noise can be, you know, sort of uh, deafening sometimes. Mm-hmm. So parades are, um, we think of them as for fun, and certainly they're, they're really enjoyable and, and people do like them. But they are also highly political um, mm-hmm. when you start looking at them a little bit more closely. Yeah. Uh, it got me thinking about uh, the the big parade in Vernal, my hometown. Uh, it's called the Dinosaur Days. So they have a Dinosaur Days uh, rodeo, I think, and there's a parade. Of course, no dinosaurs in the parade. Uh, no <laughs> Physical, but but not even representation of the dinosaurs. I don't think a lot of horses. Interesting. But I, I guess this is a community, you know, trying to 
use its brand, right? And Vernal is, you know, capital of dinosaur country. That's right. That's right. Parades are, you know, and parades uh, are very, well, they have different purposes. A lot of them are very commercial or they're used for purposes of boosterism or mm-hmm. um, um, oftentimes, you know, civic ones are organized by the Chamber of Commerce. So mm-hmm. they're, you know, trying to brand an identity. And um, a lot of the articles that talk about St. Patrick's Day these days, in fact, we think of you know, the, the default thought is that St. Patrick's Day is an American, an Irish-American holiday or an American ce- celebration of Irishness. But actually, St. Patrick's Day apparently is uh, kind of a global celebration these days. Mm. So uh, when I was doing a little background reading, um, there was, there is a St. Patrick's Day celebration in Tokyo, for example. Yeah. That's just, that's just, you know, I'm I trying to wrap my mind around that. Right, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so, how would that, so dress in green and wear the... Yeah, I think they. I think we're, it's we're organized the by. Everything. I think there's a lot of uh, expatriates there, and they mm-hmm. organize it. And uh, I was not in Japan for St. Patrick's Day, but I was in Kyoto um, a couple of years ago. And there's a lot of Irish bars there, and they're certainly very popular with both um, expatriates and um, Japanese people, mm-hmm. um, both. So there's something about an Irish brand mm-hmm. uh, that is definitely exportable, kind of in a, in a global context. So I can understand the expatriates. But for a Japanese person, I guess you, you you just want to experience some Irishness. I think so. I think they mm-hmm. like the uh, the Irish music. You know, is mm-hmm. always a big part of it. Um, beer is always good. Uh, a lot of soci- sociability and um, Japan is a, a pretty ethnically homogeneous society. So I think just like Americans, it's a way to sort of experience an ethnic group with mm-hmm. maybe not very many repercussions. <laughs> mm-hmm. That that's. You know, St. Patrick's Day has provided a, a time and a place to do that. Hmm. So uh, you could experience an ethnicity, I guess, that, that was, isn't provided by your main culture. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's, that's why those stereotypical symbols are um, useful. That's how you do it, is you yeah. use those ideas about leprechauns right. and hats and green and shamrocks and all that. And uh, this more this more permeates our culture in America because we're, you know, we're famously a melting pot. Of course, there's a there's an argument over whether the melting pot is melting, you know, but but it has historically been a melting pot. So many different nationalities and ethnicities, which have been a very homogeneous society, as you said. Um, are there other are there other ethnicities that you you know could you find a Italian you know cafes in Kyoto or? Mm. I would say in Kyoto, from my experience, the most popular were French uh, and. Irish and Indian. Oh, um, okay. So there was a strong uh, Indian presence, a lot of Indian food, and a lot of Irish bars. And then French was where you went, of course, for your romantic dates mm-hmm. and if you wanted to spend a lot of money on food. <laughs> really? So it was French is the the romantic. I guess yeah. it is kind of worldwide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about a little bit more about St. Patrick's Day and then get into a little more with areas of folklore. Lisa Gabbard is with us. She's Associate Professor of English and Director of the Folklore Program at Utah State University. And her research interests include folklore and landscape, festivity, I want to talk a bit about that, and ritual and play in medical context. Definitely want to talk about that. And I always love to talk ghosts with folklorists, so hopefully you'll... I want to talk ghosts with me again. There's there's some there's an article in the USU Statesman um, from last year talking about ghosts in the Raby West Building. That's I think where your office is, right? Uh, we'll ask you if you've ever encountered a ghost there. But certainly, some students have, and much more. We want to hear from you on your St. Patrick's Day traditions and uh, anything else you'd like to talk about. Eight hundred eight two six one four nine five or upraxcess at gmail dot com. More following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. I recently heard an employee complain that my boss doesn't respect my opinion. Instead of giving sympathy, I said, leave your opinion at home. In a good work environment, opinions don't matter. Facts matter. Facts are data combined with analysis. If you have data and solid analysis, then your leader and colleagues better listen, and they probably will. But your opinion doesn't matter. So leave your opinion at home and bring facts and good analysis to work. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. 
huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're celebrating St. Patrick's Day a day early with folklorist Lisa Gabbert. And we want to know what your uh, traditions are. We've been talking about why this unofficial holiday is so popular in the U.S. We'd love to know your traditions. Do you wear green? Do you eat corned beef and cabbage? Uh, what else uh, do you do? 800-826-1495 is the number, or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com. Lisa Gabbard is Associate Professor of English and Director of the Folklore Program at Utah State uh, University. Um, so, Lisa Gabbard, wearing green, I guess that's obvious. Green is associated with Ireland. Yes, that's right. Um, and it's a, it's an ancient color. It's always been associated with Ireland. It's not you know something that has just been put out there by um, commercial commercial forces or anything like that. Um, green, you know, the Emerald Isle is, of course, what Ireland means and is the translation in English. And uh, one of the things that we didn't talk about before, but as a spring holiday, one of the interesting things about holidays and festivals is that they are coordinated frequently with changes in the season and changes in light, um, at least in, for the, the northern hemisphere. And so, of course, we have the uh, spring equinox coming up on March 20th, um, and this is the turning point of the year. And St. Patrick's Day really, in some ways, is about renewal and rebirth and and the coming of the green, right? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. spring spring coming and longer days and, and longer lights. Mm. Where does the pinching come from, do you think? Is that, it's not just my family, is it? That's no, I think you're right. I'd forgotten about the pinching thing until you said it. <laughs> I'll have to remember to wear green tomorrow. Um, because, you know, I, I think some members of my family do very much enforce that. If you don't wear green, you get pinched. I forgot about that tradition. You know, I really have no idea. I think um, if I was going to hazard a guess, which this is completely a guess and has no basis in um, any kind of research or anything like that, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's kind of a warding off, like a um, awarding off of bad luck mm. and some, something like that, because mm. I think it's supposed to be lucky to wear green, right. um, and it's also lucky to be Irish, of course. Mm. And uh, if you're not Irish and you're not wearing green, then maybe the pinch has something to do with that, but okay. I don't know for sure. So it could be a good thing. They're, you're awarding off bad spirits or something. Yeah, something worse. Or something worse, yeah. Um, so you write that legend has it St. Patrick introduced the distilling of spirits to Ireland and drinking. So, uh, St. Patrick just, uh, so drink, so, uh, no, I read that wrong. Uh, St. Patrick has introduced the distilling of spirits, so drinking is is tradition on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting uh, legends about St. Patrick, um, and of course, um, I I think you would need um, somebody who is much more seeped in Irish history than myself to say whether those are true or not, but one of them is that he introduced spirits. Um, of course, the second one, you know, probably the most famous one is that he drove the, you know, quote unquote snakes from Ireland Mm -hmm. and the snakes, uh, have historically been interpreted as the Druids. So paganism and, um, snakes in Christian tradition being associated with evil, um, Christian missionaries framed early Druids as, as evil. So, um, there's a, a strong link between, um, those and that he partially missionized or Christianized Ireland by using the shamrock. So the shamrock was already a symbol that existed in Ireland, um, and people aren't sure what it what it meant there. But, you know, today the shamrock is, is associated with Christianity, and one of the legends has it that St. Patrick taught people about Christianity by using the three leaves of the shamrock to talk about the Holy Trinity. And then the, uh, what is so the um, the drinking, the snakes. Oh, and then, uh, you know, one other legend is, uh, getting back to this notion of light, that uh, the Druids had a tradition of lighting bonfires, and um, St. Patrick lit sort of a, a counter bonfire. Mm. And um, one of the interesting ways in which Christianity, early Christianity established itself was to use ideas that were already in circulation, but reformulating them in a particular way. So one of the metaphors of Christianity is uh, Christ is the bringer of light, right? So if you have a, a an early Christian saint lighting a bonfire and talking about uh, the light of, of Christianity and, of course, re- rebirth, uh, both physical and, and spiritual, goes right along with the idea of, of spring and changing seasons and longer mm. days anyway. Mm. And you find those, those themes echoing not just in St. Patrick's Day, uh, kind of under the surface, but in um, 
other holidays as well, Christmas, uh, for example, and we just got through with Mardi Gras. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're in the season of Lent. Um, those those themes continue. Um, Halloween as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you talk about one of your areas of uh, of study is uh, festivity. Mm-hmm. You call it um, so. Saint Patrick's Day you write is characterized by social license and inversion, which you go on to say is typical of for celebrations of, of spring. So tell me about this idea. Of well, the term, the formal term for this is carnivalesque, um, and it comes from the season of carnival, uh, which is in the states oftentimes is called Mardi Gras, but it's a European celebration, and it's characterized by uh, social license and and inversion. And that means basically that you are freer to uh, say and do things in public than you might be at other times of the year. And in the United States, we're pretty free anyway. So we don't have maybe as many um, social strictures as, you know, medieval Europe, for example. But in medieval Europe, you couldn't criticize the king or you couldn't criticize the church um, without having repercussions except for particular times of the year. And those particular times, um, one of them was carnival, and so that's where that term carnivalesque came from. So you could make fun of people uh, by writing or reciting satirical poetry, for example, or funny toasts. Uh, Oftentimes it's characterized by dressing up in costume. So you might... um, mock a cleric of the church by by dressing up uh, or, you know, uh, making a a fool, a king for the day, things like that. And you find echoes of that still in, in Halloween uh, with costumes um, in Mardi Gras down in New Orleans. You know, people will have um, costumes. And then, of course, uh, excessive, excessiveness is part of festivity, so excessive eating and drinking to certain degrees. Um, maybe socializing with people you don't normally socialize with, being out on the streets, all of that is what we call the carnivalesque. It's it's a defined time and place where you do things uh, without the social repercussions or with fewer social reper- repercussions. Mm. You mentioned that, uh, you know, in the U.S. we we have a lot of social license every day, right? So that, does that lessen the carnivalesque experience? Well, that's a great question. Um, that is one question that festival scholars ask all the time about festivity in the United States. You know, we are a um, a society that is still very much based in Puritanism in, in a lot of ways. We have puritanical roots. And the Puritans really didn't like festivity. Um, that was not their thing. They're, you know, very solemn peoples. And you don't find the kinds of inversions and social licenses, I think, that you do in other countries, um, such as uh, places in Europe, uh, Latin America, thing, uh, places that were um, Catholic in, in origins. Mm-hmm. I experienced sort of an inversion of this idea. Um, I was an LDS missionary 25 years ago in, in Argentina. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we would see on television and, and hear about wild carnival festivals in Brazil. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of the Argentinian towns, it was, you know, almost puritanical in comparison, at least. Uh, so, you know, the the, in, the inversion was not as... Was, was social life was not as much in the carnivalesque. Uh, and I don't know what had, that probably has to do with the different cultures, but... Yeah, I don't know about Argentina, per se. I mean, Brazil's, you know, obviously famous uh, for its carnival. There there are certain locations in the world that have become very famous for it. So Brazil, obviously, is one. Uh, the celebration in Trinidad and Tobago is um, a second one. New mm. Orleans, of course, is the most famous one in um, the United States. But Mobile, Alabama has, has a good one, too. Uh, Venice, Italy, you know. Um, and surprisingly, Montreal, Canada. Mm. Um, because I think it has a large Caribbean population. Mm. Um, so there, I think there, it's not necessarily characteristic of everywhere. Um, I think Mexico also has certain places, but there are certain ports. And oftentimes, um, well, in the case of um, New Orleans, it was a, a slave port. So, you know, the, the particular history of, of New Orleans is one of the reasons why Carnival really, I mean, it was a, a French um, colony originally mm-hmm. and then was sold to the Spanish. So it has a lot more European influences there. Mm-hmm. Although it's interesting about Argentina because Argentina is very European. Right. Yeah. So th- maybe that has something to do with this. You know, Maybe it's more European in flavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the celebrations and over in Brazil, you know, a, kind of a different tradition. Building. Yeah. Well, but Brazil has a, a much more um, of a uh, of an African influence, I think, mm-hmm. than um, than Argentina. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I want to, anything else you'd like to say about St. Patrick's Day? And then I'd, I'd like to move on to ghosts. Oh, ghosts. Um, let me, no, I think we've covered, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of things. Um, just that I would say uh, it's a fun, you know, holiday. I'm, I hope you do get some, some calls in because I'd be mm-hmm. curious to hear how, how people celebrate it. And um, it is definitely sort of a, a, a celebration of light and weather and renewal and um, rebirth mixed in with, um, you know, a lot of a lot of things green and a lot of probably commercialization and commodification mm-hmm. of Irishness. Right, right. So uh, do do celebrate if you'd, if you'd like. Um, I want to move on to this is an article that I found in the Utah Statesman, the, uh, the USU student newspaper. This is from last year uh, on Halloween. And so uh, the title is Life or Death, The Anatomy of a Campus Haunting. Um, and uh, they quote a student in uh, who who encountered, uh, she says, a ghost. Uh, at least that's that was their experience um, in the Raby West Building, which is where the English department is is situated, right, to where, where you work. Um, it's supposed to be haunted. Quoting from the article, one student related their first-hand look at just how rumors the building uh, get started in an email to your colleague Lynn McNeil. The student was working late until about 3 a.m., which uh, isn't unusual for a graduate student to be working, McNeil said in her fourth-floor Raby West uh, office. The student was headed downstairs to the third floor when she saw something turn and fly down the hall, as if she startled uh, someone who uh, turned to hide. It could have been a custodian, the student thought, or a campus police officer in the midst of a late-night security check, but it was too early for custodians. Police officers tend to be loud. Naturally, the student decided to investigate. She could see the rough outline of a figure around the corner, but said it didn't have a definite shape and was light in color, almost white. And when she went around the corner to get a look, no one was there. So she turned to go. Then she heard someone talking. It was a man's voice, mumbling. The mumbling was accompanied by sounds that could have been moaning or crying, except they sounded unnatural for a human. The student decided to dismiss this as pipes and turned again to head downstairs. When then she when she got to the second floor, the sounds hadn't gotten any quieter despite her increased distance from the source. At that point, the student booked it down the remainder of the stairs and out the door to the parking lot. McNeil says, I don't blame her. <laughs> so, get chills just reading that. Um, I'm not someone who, you know, seeks out ghosts. I don't think the student was either. There are people who, you know, go to haunted places because they want to have an encounter. Ghost hunters. Ghost hunters, yes. Uh, I don't know if you've ever encountered a ghost in Raby West. You know, I have not encountered a ghost in Raby West, but my office uh, for years was on the second floor, Um, and I just this year moved to the third. But um, this one sounds like it originated on the fourth floor. And one of the things with uh, ghosts is they sort of stereotypically, you know, there's stereotypes associated with ghosts, of course, too, Um, they exist in either oftentimes in basements or in attics, which are the more remote parts of buildings. And the student offices are on the fourth floor, which is the uppermost floor in Raby West. So it does not surprise me that the student found one as she was coming down from the fourth floor. And it also sounds like uh, she encountered it in the hallway. Mm-hmm. And these places, uh, we were talking about liminality before the before we started here. And the term liminality uh means between, betweenness. And you often find ghosts in the locations and buildings that are considered to be between. So hallways uh, would be another example. Mm-hmm. So it seems like a perfect place for a ghost for me. Right. You also mentioned this article that uh, college students are in a liminal place in their lives. That's right. They are. Uh, that is an idea from uh, Libby Tucker, who has a whole book uh, on campus ghosts. And she talks about The fact that student life and university life is a transitional phase, it's an in-between phase, so students are moving from childhood to adulthood, and they have certainly some adult responsibilities, but maybe not as much as you would have, you know, as a full-fledged adult. And it's entirely possible that, you know, ghosts are very appropriate for students, Mm -hmm. that they they seek each other out. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could be, could be. the Utah Statesman went and found uh, our friend Charlie Heineman, USU philosophy professor, who uh, was the person who was throwing cold water on this idea. He says there's another way to explain what the graduate student experienced. Sometimes our ideas about ghosts can create a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, he says. He quoted, he quoted him, in scary places we have in our minds some kind of expectation. Under the right conditions, those wishes become true. 
Mm, yes. Um, well, folklorists have a counter to that kind of argument. Um, that uh, in folklore theory is called the cultural source hypothesis, which is that if your culture gives you an idea, you might be more prone to see it. So if we have this idea that there is something called a ghost, whether or not you believe in it, you are, if you're in a scary place, maybe you will see a ghost. Um, and that is, has been a, um, a common idea about unexplainable phenomena for a long, long time. But in the uh, early 80s, there was a folklorist named David Hufford who put forward an alternative hypothesis that he called the experience-centered hypothesis, which is that people actually do have strange experiences um, that you can document phenomenologically, and our culture tells us how to explain them. So it's entirely possible that the student did see something. Um, none of us know what it is. Maybe it was a janitor. Maybe it was a police. Maybe it was a ghost. Those are all explanations that are available to her to to explain whatever it was that she saw. But uh, I like the a lot of folklorists, I, me and a lot of folklorists, like that cultural source hypothesis because it really gives credence to the idea that people can tell the difference between reality and the imagination. And I know in my folklore classes, um, I, I always teach a section on ghosts, and I always ask my students if they have, how many of them have encountered a ghost or felt like they had something that they couldn't explain. You know, not that they had to think it was a ghost, but just something that they couldn't explain. And usually about a third to a half of them raise their hands. So mm -hmm. it's we think of it as uncommon, but I don't think it's uncommon at all. Mm -hmm. I think it's common. We just don't talk about it very often. Mm -hmm. And your quote, in fact, they end with a quote from you. Uh, you say, it's nicer to live in a world with mystery. That's absolutely right. Mm. I mean, you know, why not have a world of mystery? If, yeah. if we don't know what it is anyway, then you might as well take the, the more fun explanation. Yeah. And uh, I, I think some interesting things, well, euphemism, interesting, come from fear. Fear is very primal. Yes, yes. And we live in a very fear-driven society these days. So yeah. it's becoming even more more primal <laughs> yeah. or bigger. Right. Uh, you, before we leave this um, topic, before we went on the air, you t you're talking about a very interesting project that you've been involved in, explaining, I guess, American ghost stories to a Japanese student audience. Yeah, this is a, a, a project. I'm I'm, I'm co-authoring a, a book with a Japanese scholar on American folklore for a Japanese audience, um, and these are high school and maybe early college students who need reading materials in English because they're learning the English language. And uh, we thought it would be fun to have English language materials about American folklore traditions. So we have, you know, 14 different chapters, uh, one on Halloween, one on Mardi Gras, one on rodeos um, and, and uh, county fairs, actually, uh, one on ghosts. And what's been very interesting to me, I, I don't speak Japanese, um, so to try and translate ideas from American folklore for a Japanese audience has been very interesting and very challenging. So, for example, in the chapter on Halloween, getting back to our, our talk about Halloween briefly, you know, I, I would write a sentence, for example, you know, children might dress up as ghosts and witches for Halloween. It's sort of very basic examples of, of what children do. But uh, they may or may not have the concept of a witch or a ghost. Um, and those are Christian ideas. You know, we don't think about them as Christian ideas, but a witch is technically somebody who's cavorted with the devil or sold or sold to the devil. And the devil is a Christian idea. And a ghost is, um, you know, sort of the essence or spirit of somebody who has come back for some reason, maybe because they didn't get a proper burial or they have information that is pertinent to the living or they want to warn or something like that, but it's sort of a spirit not at rest. And um, as a Buddhist society, um, Japan is just very different. So their conceptions of the idea or of the afterlife are very different. And so trying to figure out how to explain it at a, um, or, or, or frame it at a level that uh, students just learning English can understand has been a really interesting project mm -hmm. for me. I've really enjoyed it. Sometimes we don't know what we don't know, right? And so in this case, uh, cultural differences that perhaps we hadn't picked up on until you did the project, right? That's right. Well, just assumptions. You yeah. know, you don't mm -hmm. you don't realize what kind of um, cultural knowledge or cultural presumptions you need in order to understand what you think is a basic concept, um, but then actually becomes uh, very, very complicated. So. Mm -hmm. 
uh, continuing on the Halloween example, and this actually ties into Irish, Halloween is an Irish holiday. Um, and one of the reasons that it is is popular is that it has um, a few, you know, kind of pre-Christian elements. So to talk about what a pre-Christian element might be or what paganism might be, all presumes a knowledge of or sort of a basic understanding of Christianity, and that gets pretty complicated to explain mm-hmm. when you're writing a mm-hmm. ten or twelve page chapter. Right, right. <laughs> Are there any difficulties in explaining the rodeo to mm. to a Japanese audience? That chapter was interesting because of the the nature of ranching um, mm. and the scale of ranches in terms of land. Um, you know, Japan is a small country. It uh, it's very densely packed, um, very urbanized, and there is a lot of farmland, but there's just not sort of the vast expanses of landscape that we have in the West. And so uh, my co-author has asked me to, I, I can't remember the exact um, square mileage now, but I had cited you know the biggest ranch in Texas um, as an example of you know ra- uh, ranches in the, in the West. And it was about the size of one of the prefectures mm. in in uh, Japan. And even as somebody, she speaks English very well and has traveled, you know, the world and been in the United States many times. She really couldn't quite believe that one piece of property would be that big. Mm. So I think that um, just the scale of things is quite mm-hmm. different. By the way, uh, how long did you spend in Kyoto? About five months. About five months. You don't speak Japanese. No. So these these uh, students spoke English. I'm guessing. But uh, anything else that stood out to you in in terms of uh, you know the, the the culture clash, culture shock, you know that you must have experienced diving into Japan? Oh, it was so much fun. It was really great. Well, um, one thing I learned uh, very quickly was proxemics, um, so distance between people and how you uh, interact with people on a physical level. Um, you know, this is very basic, but the Japanese bow, um, they don't shake hands, uh, typically, <clears throat> and certainly, uh, you don't hug. Uh, so I think in, in the States we're sort of exuberant and, um, I'm an exuberant person, so I tend to give hugs and I think I tried to hug somebody. This is, you know, cultural faux pas number one is, you know, the, the ways of touching are, are very quite different. Mm. Um, in fact, one of my students said that, uh, and this actually very did, did surprise me. We were having a discussion about this in class one time, and he said he uh, had never hugged his parents and probably never would. So mm. it sounded, you know, like in some case, at least in his case, it wasn't even something that happened in his family. Yeah. Interesting. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, folk beliefs among doctors. I want to make sure we, we that's one of your areas of uh, of study. And uh, getting talking a little bit about uh, about your book, which is uh, Winter Carnival in a Western Town, Identity Change and the Good of the Community, published by USU Press in uh, 2011. We're talking with uh, folklorist Lisa Gabbert. She is Associate Professor of English and Director of the Folklore Program at Utah State University. We'll have more following this break. There is no issue more divisive in America today than immigration policy. The federal government has formally begun moving to get tougher on illegal immigration. I just signed two executive orders. President Trump talking tough on immigration. That will save thousands of lives, millions of jobs. And folks just don't want to come to this country any longer. Ask 21 people what they think. You're going to get 21 different answers. The Department of Homeland Security. As Utah Public Radio begins research for a new original series, we want your knowledge and Opinions. What do you think about immigration in the U.S.? Do you want to see changes in the refugee process? Have immigrants had a particular impact in your life? We want to know what you think about these important issues. At upr.org, let your voice be heard. Coming up, a musical fairy tale played by the Los Angeles Philharmonic. It's a 15-minute orchestral romp by Richard Strauss, celebrating a crass, anti-establishment prankster, a piece called Till Eulenspiegel's Merry Pranks. We'll hear the piece and other concert highlights from around the world on the next performance today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Uh, we are uh, talking uh, St. Patrick's Day today. We also got uh, talking ghosts. 
Always interesting to talk to a folklorist, I've found, and we have one in studio with us today, and that's Lisa Gabbert, who is Associate Professor of English and Director of the Folklore Program at Utah State University. We're going to, in this last segment, talk a bit about um, folklore among doctors. Had even thought of that as a, as a genre, but Lisa Gabbert studies that. And uh, if we have time, we'll get into talking about um, the, the book, Winter Carnival in a Western Town. You're welcome to join the conversation here at 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we uh, have an uh, option for you to tweet at us. And our friend Lynn McNeil has just tweeted. Uh, she says, I grew up eating green pancakes and drinking green milk on hashtag St. Patrick's Day. I hadn't even remembered that. I, I I'm not, can't remember whether we did that growing up, but I heard of friends who did. Green milk? I've never heard of green milk. Green green milk, yeah, and green pancakes. You ever done green pancakes? We've done green eggs. Okay, green know, eggs. But that was more the Dr. Zeus influence yes, because okay. my daughters wanted to try um, green eggs, and so I think we did green eggs for St. Patrick's Day, and they were... So thoroughly disgusted by it, they never <laughs> asked for it again. <laughs> just the, you know, because it doesn't, t- right? The food color doesn't taste right, but just the just the look of it. Yeah, well, the enjoyment of food is much more than you know taste. Of right. course, it's scent and um, aesthetic appeal. And vegetables should be green, yeah. not milk or yeah. not not <laughs> eggs. <laughs> right. Well, thanks for that, Lynn. The Lynn grew up eating green pancakes and drinking green milk. Uh, so we'd love to hear your tradition as well. Uh, by Twitter, we're at UPR Access, and you can email us to upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So, uh, Lisa Gabbert, you, uh, one of your areas of study is uh, uh, ritual and play in medical contexts. Yeah, this, uh, this interest in, in medical contexts came about um, partially because I'm I just realized over the course of a number of years I was interested in play generally. Um, you know, what people do when they're playing, what societies do when they're playing, and festivals are a way that a culture plays or a society sort of takes a break from its normal life and plays. And uh, I've been teaching a, a class on children's folklore since graduate school on, um, on on children's folklore, and, of course, the idea of play comes up a lot there. And the medical context came up for, well, the most immediate reason is that my husband was going through medical school, um, and he had... Mm-hmm been around folklorists long enough that he recognized folklore when he saw it and started giving me lots of examples. So that was the more, the most practical way I got interested in it. But um, oftentimes folklorists, when they study groups, don't study professional groups or, or white-collar groups. You know, our, our histories and sort of um, working-class uh, groups of people or ethnic groups or, or things like that. And so there have been some studies done on folklore of of more professional or, or middle-class groups, but but fewer. And I thought I could make a, a contribution there. Mm-hmm. And um, I had the access, too. So access is always a, a question. So um, that is my plans for my next book. It's one I'm working mm-hmm. on right okay. now. Uh, c- can you tell us a, a story? Hmm. Well, there's a whole bunch. You would, Doctors are the most superstitious people you'd ever think. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of funny, you know, because they're they're scientists, right? and uh, have a heavy background in science. But there's also a strong uh, vein of what I would call just good old-fashioned superstition. And folklorists oftentimes don't even like to use the term superstition uh, because it it, uh, has kind of a negative connotation. But um, there's all sorts of beliefs, for example, about about the full moon, Um, and and not just doctors, nurses too, um, people Mm -hmm. who work in in hospitals generally, um, that about the ICU sort of going crazy uh, during a full moon, or if it's a full moon, um, you're going to expect to be busy. And of course, they they measure their uh, whether things are good at the hospital or bad at the hospital by how many patients are doing well and how many are not, right? So if everybody's doing well and you don't have a lot of missions and there's not a lot of people coming, then it's a good day or a good night. And if, um, you know, you have people just kind of revolving through the door and everybody's sick and everybody's doing ba- badly. It's it's considered a bad night of work. Um, lots of beliefs about luck uh, as mm. well. So you really can uh, curse yourself and the people that you're working with. They work in teams. This, is, this also sort of influences their beliefs. But if you say something like, oh, it's a slow night, you know, mm. that is kind of the kiss of death mm. because immediately something's going to happen and... Um, you know, you're going to start getting a lot of patients, and or the ones that you have will start uh, tanking. And uh, one of the earliest examples that I can think of uh, was 
rituals of purity. Um, so in the operating room, uh, obviously they're very concerned with um, being sterile and, and, and quite clean uh, in order not to introduce infection. But they have a very particular way of washing up, uh, surgeons do before operating. Um, and it's very ritualized. Um, and you know, you, you uh, clean one hand um, and you wash all the way to the elbow and the other, and you have um, an orange stick for your fingernails. Mm. And um, the sink is operated by a foot pedal, so you're not touching um, you know, handles and things like that. But then once you are uh, sterile, they have what's called a sterile field. And this is what I, I got really interested in, which was literally about kind of six inches in front of you and stops at about your waist. And so it's sort of this like magical area around yourself that is considered sterile and nobody is allowed to break the sterile field. So if somebody sticks their hand in front of you, just doesn't even touch you, but breaks your sterile field, you have to start the, mm. the ritual all over again. And mm. a lot of rituals are about purification. And so I think... Certainly, there's obviously a scientific basis to washing your hands before you, you know, and sterilizing yourself before you do an operation. But there's a, a belief dimension or a ritual dimension to this that I think hasn't um, been explored. Um, so that's, you know, one example. Mm. And it, uh, I guess you wouldn't think of it. You wouldn't predict this. Maybe, maybe I, I wouldn't because, as you say, these are scientists. But I guess if we're human, we're going to have this dimension to us. That's right. And, you know, um, and, and, and I'm interested in doctors in hospitals, so not necessarily people in private practice, you know, their own little family practice, but occupations that have a lot of stress um, and where the stakes are pretty high, I think this is fairly common. Mm. Um, so traditional studies in occupational folklore have looked at, for example, uh, firefighters or loggers or oil rig workers. Actually, we were talking about oil rig workers during the break. Um, so people who work outdoors where there's a degree of danger um, are often have been the fo focus of folklore studies, um, but also um, stockbrokers and people who work on the, the stock market, uh, on the floor of the stock market, have a lot of folklore and a lot of hijinks. And this is kind of where I'm interested in, too. There's a lot of practical joking and a lot of uh, verbal banter and humor back and forth because I think um, these are stressful occupations and, and – um, Folklore is a way of releasing some of that stress mm -hmm. in, that, um, in, in kind of symbolic ways. Yeah. Which I guess you would, originally I was thinking, I don't know if I want my doctor to be engaging in hijinks, but, but I, I came around to thinking uh, maybe I do because I, I want my surgeon to relieve stress. And, yeah, well, and, they, don't, you know, yeah. they don't do it while they're operating. You know, I actually went to the U last summer and I did some observations in the OR um, and watched the surgeons operate in, in various, and they're very serious when they're actually operating. Right. So um, it's not all the time, but there were definitely periods where the mood lightened a little bit. Um, so during the surgery, you know, the, the surgeon, um, the attending was teaching the fellows, you know, it was, it was a, it's a teaching hospital. So he was either having the, the fellows do the procedures and telling them what to do or instructing them, or he was doing it and telling them what he was doing. So that was very serious. Yeah. But once the uh, operation was finished, um, there was verbal banter back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, so it was during those transition periods, getting back to right. the notion of liminality. And I think that's where um, humor tends to emerge is during these transition periods or when the, the patient was coming out of the anesthesia. Right. Um, that's a little bit tense, too, because you, you want the person to wake up. Um, so sometimes there are jokes there, you know, trying to get the person to, to wake up and shake off the, the sleepiness. We will leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, we've been talking with Lisa Gabbard, Associate Professor of English and Director of the Folklore Program at USU. Thank you. Thank you very much. We have an email from uh, Glenn. Sorry we missed that, Glenn. I'll get that on on uh, Monday. Thanks for listening today. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.